Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I am Nicole Cavillis. Today's episode focuses on the link between autism and anxiety, more specifically how people with autism experience anxiety. A.J. Drexel of the Autism Institute at Drexel University states that three quarters of autistic children have at least one co-occurring mental health condition, which could be anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, etc. Nearly half of people with autism have at least two occurring mental health conditions. And the National Autism Society states that 40 to 50% of people on the autism spectrum also receive a clinical diagnosis of anxiety. Though there are many articles that talk about the link between autism and anxiety, the triggers that cause people with autism to experience anxiety and treatments for anxiety, uh, Nick Dubin's book, Asperger's Syndrome and Anxiety, goes into greater detail about why people with autism experience anxiety. Dubin was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome in 2004 and has a background in psychology. He has written multiple books about autism and mental health, which includes anxiety, depression, and bullying. He has also written books and articles about legal reform for people in the autism community. We will be doing a high-level summary of key points Dubin brings up in his book about autism and anxiety with the hope that our audience will be motivated to buy his book. Additionally, Brett and I will talk about our experience with anxiety based on Dubin's points, how we deal with anxiety and autism in our personal lives, our workplace, and supporting anxious students with autism. We'll close this episode by talking about book recommendations for autism and anxiety in addition to Nick Dubin's book on autism and anxiety. Okay, so let's get into this. So the first thing we're going to talk about are general common triggers of anxiety in the autistic brain. All right, so Dubin outlines four of these. The first one is psychological stress, then it goes into perceived demands and ability to cope. Third is overreaction of the sympathetic nervous system and underactivation of the parasympathetic nervous system. And then finally is trauma. All right, so let's take these one at a time. So the first one is psychological stress. This occurs when a person feels vulnerable when confronted by a source of power. So people with autism struggle with powerlessness and inferiority. Teachers, parents, and therapists are trying to cure, fix, or mask autistic behaviors to survive and thrive in a neurotypical world, for example. It could be a result of academic struggles, so processing speed, executive functioning, organizational struggles, social-emotional struggles, especially with making friends and dating, social skills related to getting and maintaining employment, cultural shame, reinforcing that autism is a bad thing to have, systemic ableism. The person with autism needs to change to meet the demands of a neurotypical world rather than the typical world being accommodating to the person with autism. This is an issue of equality and access. Unhealthy compensation or overcompensation can take place unconsciously to reduce feelings of powerlessness, inferiority, and anxiety. This usually backfires either because other people can detect visual behavior or the person with autism feels emotional strain from asking. Overcompensation usually masks inferiority rather than strengthens self-empowerment. All right. Can I jump in real quick you to bet. clarify what uh, overcompensation would be? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So an example of overcompensation would be, you know, a form of autism masking, which we talked about in our previous episode. Um, I say, you know, for my personal experience, a form of overcompensation is using my artistic talent as a way to earn respect. And I noticed that when I uh, was doing, you know, really bad anime art, nobody really noticed or cared. But when I started doing realism in college, people were blown away. And so to me, that was an overcompensation because there was an immediate connection between my talent impacting Mm. the way that I was treated by others and using my talent as a way for people to see who I was and not be turned off by my autism. And the same thing could be said about, you know, I'm really big on certifications and degrees. Mm. And so I think there was a part of me that felt like the more certifications and degrees I had, the more that people would respect me and it would it would reduce my perception of feeling powerless and mm-hmm. inferior. Um, mm-hmm. So these are just my personal examples with overcompensation. But, you know, I know some autistic women can overcompensate when it comes to beauty, um, you know, mm-hmm. trying to have their looks be a certain way to be appealing. Yes. The same can be said about, you know, owning certain types of flashy objects. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you know, it, it depends person by person, but the whole point of overcompensation is about going above and beyond in right. a sort of perfectionist way as currency to give yourself a sense of power in social dynamics and to get people to respect you rather than, uh, treat you badly. And that's common in the neurotypical world as well. This mm-hmm. is not anything, um, outside the norm of what many of us experience. Yeah. Okay. So the second one is perceived demands and ability to cope. Psychological stress occurs when the demands imposed on you from the outside world outweigh your ability to cope with those demands and you lack the stamina or resources to cope with those demands. So for people with autism experience greater psychological stress at a more frequent rate compared to neurotypical people, highly sensitive nervous systems come into play and emotional sensitive sensitivity decreases stamina. Anxiety makes it difficult to access internal coping resources, creating more dependence on external coping resources. Transition stress and unpredictability can negatively impact stamina and access to internal coping resources. The ability to cope relates to low frustration tolerance and perfectionism and challenges with processing or expressing emotions, causing emotions to feel bottled up. All right, the third one is overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system and underactivation of the parasympathetic nervous system. All right, for those of you at home in science class, right, the sympathetic nervous system activates the body's fight or flight response. The parasympathetic nervous system activates the body's rest and digest response. So this is an, an unbalance is what this is. So emotional overwhelm and sensory dysregulation keeps people with autism chronically activated in the sympathetic nervous system, losing the ability to access the soothing capabilities of the parasympathetic nervous system. The more often the sympathetic nervous system is chronically activated, the more likely the person with autism experiences emotional hijacking or losing the ability to stay calm and emotionally centered. All right, now, um, Peter Hess in 2022 did a study on the amygdala and his study was anxiety drives amygdala differences in autistic youth and this is what he discovered people with autism and anxiety disorders and or 
OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, have larger amygdalas compared to people with autism without a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder. People with ADHD and anxiety were determined to not to have larger amygdalas. So again, science class, right? 101. The amygdala is part of the limbic system, which relays emotional and sensory information to the brain, which supports processing of memory, decision-making, and emotional responses. And finally, trauma and PTSD. Uh, most common type of trauma that people with autism experience is bullying, right? I can testify that with, uh, with my son. Psychologist and autism expert Dr. Tony Atwood states that childhood bullying increases the risk of people with autism experiencing PTSD in their adulthood. Also, five maladaptive schemas or core negative beliefs that perpetuate feeling of anxiety with people with autism. These schemas are disconnection and rejection, impaired autonomy and performance, impaired limits, other directedness, and overvigilance and inhibition. Now, before I go into detail with all of these schemas, I want to say that from my perspective of experiencing anxiety, understanding these uh, schemas and how they work really made a difference in understanding how my anxiety operated and what the core root issues were in a way that I think a lot of resources about generalized anxiety don't hit on. And so that's why I really fell in love with this book and really wanted to share these points with our audience. So our first one is the schema of disconnection and rejection. The core belief is that the world is not a safe place. It comes from abandonment and insecurity. Forming relationships is not a safe thing to do. That can come from bullying by peers, parents and teachers who don't understand a person with autism's academic needs or behavioral differences, and getting rejected from a prospective job application or getting fired from a job. There's also mistrust. The person with autism fears that others have ill intent and will take advantage of them. Emotional deprivation, which is a person with autism feels like they have to get their own emotional needs met since the neurotypical people around them are incapable of doing so. Then that comes to overcompensate on fixing or masking autistic behaviors as a way to get other people's emotional needs met. There's social isolation and alienation. Um, a person with autism feels different, even alien from others and doesn't fit in socially. And lastly, there's a feeling of failure to achieve, which leads to inadequacy and inferiority and feelings of failure in academic and social relationships, which leads to the pressure to overcompensate to meet or exceed the bar of neurotypical milestones. So to summarize, you know, disconnection and rejection has a lot to do with the shame-based trauma around social emotional relationships. And when those uh, relationships are not doing well, um, there's a feeling that these relationships are not safe. Therefore, the world is not a safe place. And mm -hmm. my needs are not as important as other people's needs. Mm -hmm. Okay. The second one is impaired autonomy and performance. So the core belief here is I cannot function adequately in the world. Okay. That leads to dependence and the feeling of incompetence. A person with autism doesn't believe that he or she can handle the responsibilities of being an adult. A person with autism feels so overwhelmed about daily life that they may be dependent on a caregiver function. Could lead to vulnerability to harm and illness. 
fear of changing circumstances or challenges of an unknown outcome, hypervigilance caused by fear of an impending crisis, and this could cause a body-based phobia, right? We talked about this before in other episodes, fear of germs, blood, vomit, etc. Okay, an enmeshment of the undeveloped self is the constant experience with rejection causing a person with autism to reject themselves. Enmeshed with adult caregiver that protects them from the harsh realities of the world, or the person with autism is so self-reliant and individualistic that they are uncomfortable with seeking help. There are impaired limits. The core belief of that is things are either good or bad. And this is a reflection of insufficient control or low frustration tolerance. We've talked a lot in previous episodes that the black and white thinking, catastrophizing, um, really impacts that feeling of the locus of control, which there's the external locus, which is where you're relying on external factors to regulate you and make you feel safe. And then there are the internal locuses of control, which is where you're using your internal resources to self-regulate. So when you don't have sufficient self-control and you have increased low frustration tolerance, which by the way, we do have an episode on that, it leads to black and white thinking, perfectionism and catastrophizing. There are issues with boundaries and flexible thinking. There's an inability to fail forward um, the, which is the ability to use failure as a stepping stone for success. And then there's the inability to use creative problem solving skills. The fourth schema is other directedness. That core belief is I am worthless or I am worthless without the approval of others. And this leads to what's called subjugation. People with autism must sacrifice their personal needs to meet the needs of other people or else they will experience rejection or alienation. And then there's pressure to follow the hidden curriculum and rules of social skills. This makes people with autism hypervigilant to understand and comply with to all unwritten rules. The last schema is overvigilance and inhibition. The core belief is that the world is unpredictable. There's a strong feeling of over-control and emotional inhibition, which means that expressing emotions will lead to trouble. The world will turn against a person with autism if they express their emotions too strongly or intensely. And Dubin goes into a greater detail in this section where he talks about how when we have meltdowns or tantrums and people, you know, strangers and caregivers get frustrated with that or, or were associated with being immature, that is a, a really core part of that consequence that we can't express our true selves even when we struggle because it's not socially acceptable. There's trauma caused by being punished or shamed for having violent or socially inappropriate emotional outbursts. And this causes a person with autism to become stoic, stoic and emotionally disconnected. And this is a form of autism masking. Now, I want to kind of summarize everything we just talked about. It is a lot of dense information. Mm -hmm. And if it's hard to follow, we strongly recommend that you buy this book. It goes into uh, a lot of really fantastic detail on these topics. So if that's kind of a better way to, to sit and process with the, this information, that's great. And we'll also have a summary of it uh, in our blog and our show notes. 
So Brett, based on the list of these schemas, which one do you think stands out in relation to your son Josh's struggle with autism and anxiety? Well, the, the things that resonated with me were um, the disconnection and rejection and social isolation and alienation. So Joshua has always been sensitive for to people making fun of him, right? So he recognizing that he's different, trying to mask that he is different and trying to play into that game because, you know, we all want people to like us. Um, the other thing that that resonated with me was this idea of failure to achieve, right? And so that can impact a person in a bunch of different ways. So it could be not understanding the why behind the activity, for example. And the other thing would be wanting to please um, your parents or your teacher or something like that and being frustrated that you can't or being anxious that you don't know um, how to do that. Mm -hmm. Nicole, how about you? Which, which of these schemas related to you and your experiences with anxiety? So I totally agree with you. I think my schemas that resonated with me when I read this book um, were disconnection and rejection, mm -hmm. as well as um, other directedness, the idea mm. that um, I am worthless or I am worthless mm. without the approval of others. And uh, I often felt that the world was an unsafe place, especially mm. socially. And I had to have perfect social skills as right. a way that I could protect myself. Um, this fear reinforced my social perfectionism and my unhealthy special interest in learning social skills. Mm. And what's really hard about this is, you know, having that social perfectionism, that fixation on social skills, you get positive reinforcement, um, which I've learned is really unhealthy because you're getting praise for autism masking. Right, right. I can't tell you how many times I've had people say like, wow, you know, I would have never thought you were autistic because you're so extroverted. You're mm. so socially intelligent. You have so many friends. And when I was younger, I felt really empowered by this because I, mm. I felt like autism wasn't holding me back from having a rewarding social life and being able to engage with people. But then as I got older and I was trying to overcome my social perfectionism and critically thinking about the root causes of it, I realized mm. that um, what, you know, all of that praise was reinforcing a really toxic habit mm. that was just perpetuating this core issue of anxiety and shame. Right, and so in right. order to heal that anxiety and shame, I had to realize that, uh, I don't want a mask and I don't want that praise from other people. And I, and I guess like, I wouldn't say that I've done this a lot because I do think people come from a well-intentioned naive place when, when mm. they say, wow, I, you know, I can't tell, but I think that when you say things like that, it, it creates this very narrow perception of what autism is. And, right. and people think that, you know, you, the only way that you can be autistic is if you are bad with social cues, but autism is a spectrum. And my autism is the reason that I developed really good social skills. So for better or worse, mm -hmm. you know, part of it was my autistic brain latched on to de the desire to learn social skills and read books. But the other reason that that special interest was there was because of trauma. Yeah. Um, and so those were things that I, I had to unpack. Um, and I also felt that no matter how good my social skills were, I always felt like people saw my differences, you know, so 
so going back earlier, you know, I get this praise like, oh my God, I, I didn't know you were autistic. And then mm -hmm. something happens, whether it's a problematic behavior or just like a quirky social thing. Right. Then people go, oh, that's right. why she's autistic. Mm. And, and it's really hard. It, it, I think it puts me in this awkward place of, I don't want people to see my autism in a negative light. You know, I right. want to be seen as somebody that is successful and can do things. Sure. Um, so I think that there's like this weird part of me that doesn't want people to see that I'm autistic. But then there's another part of me that wants people to see that I'm autistic, yeah. um, you know, because I want people to see the positives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to be honest, I I can't tell you how many people have said, oh, I suspected you were autistic because that's all you talk about and you're so passionate about advocacy. And I look right. at that as a positive reflection of my autism. Right. But I also want to be seen as somebody who does struggle mm -hmm. um, because to be on the hamster wheel of like, oh, I screwed up something socially and I need to fix this. Like you just yeah. get to the point where you're like, do people understand that this is hard for me? Yeah. Um, and, and that's really vulnerable because people are not compassionate when it comes to um, your social emotional intelligence. But I think it really comes down to that bias that yeah. people have about like, I think neurotypical dis people dismiss that they have um, autistic, you know, uh, sorry, not autistic struggles, social right, struggles. Right. Yes. But when, but it's like when somebody knows that you're autistic, all of those social mistakes are, are seen under a microscope. Right. Or amplified. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I wrote a poem that talks about like, I have a right to make human mistakes. And, mm -hmm. and that really talks about an equity and inclusion problem. Mm. Because I remember, even in my adulthood, constantly asking myself, at what level of functioning do I need to get yeah. where my social mistakes are seen as human mistakes and not autistic mistakes? Yeah. It's really hard. And, and ultimately, I think it depends on people who just get who I am. I think the people like you who see my autism um, for what it is, for mm -hmm. better or worse, you know, I think that you've looked at my socializing as like, you know, this is a normal human struggle right. and, you Which know, let's all, empower yeah. you. Right. So I, I we think, all struggle with you. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I feel like when I'm with you and, and especially when you were mentoring me as a new teacher, it just felt like my struggles were normal. Whereas other people will just kind of turn their noses up or, or judge your struggles. And it makes you feel very othered. Um, yes. So, yes. so that, so th yeah, that, that limbo of wanting to be seen, not wanting to be seen, is really hard and and i can i can imagine i'm not the only autistic person who feels that way mm -hmm. um for most of my life uh i was implicitly and explicitly told that i would experience collateral loss with my friendships my romantic life and my professional success if my mm -hmm. autism showed mm -hmm. you can only imagine that there's so much fear about your social environment um that bad things are going to happen to you if your autism shows. Yeah, that's and, a bad message. And, and ultimately, it's not true. And, and unfortunately, the 90s just had so much propaganda around mm. autism being like the straitjacket and this yeah. hostage. And so, um, and so I think at that time that I was diagnosed, autism was so villainized. Mm -hmm. And it was seen as like, 
you know, this, this barrier that holds me back from living a good quality life. But I love who I am. I'm very, I feel this tremendous amount of purpose in my life by being an advocate. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, I have gained friends in a romantic life and professional success because I'm open about my autism. And also like I'm at a place where I, I don't care if there's loss, if my, if I'm open about my autism, because I don't want that influence in my life. I don't want things in my life that are going to create pressure and stress for me to mask. It's just not worth it at this stage of my life. And I don't feel like I'm, I'm giving a gift to society by allowing those influences to mask me. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, this trauma also caused issues with other directedness and overvigilance and inhibition. So for most of my life, I felt like I had to surrender my own feelings to meet the needs of other people. And that came from the belief that, you know, again, I will experience alienation and rejection if I expressed my autism, including my physical and mental health needs. As a result, I constantly felt worthless without the approval of others. And I will say I also learned that Seeking approval from others was also a way to help regulate my nervous system. So it wasn't just about self-esteem. Um, it was about creating homeostasis and mm-hmm. calm. Um, I feel like expressing my emotions would lead to negative consequences. Um, I didn't bottle my emotions up, but it put a lot of pressure on me to be the smartest person in the room, which is just so unhealthy. Yeah. Uh, and I tended to get embroiled in conflict with others because I do have an assertive advocate personality, which, you know, uh, I, I was talking to my therapist recently where I'm good about, I hate to use the word instigating conflict, but I feel like when there's something moral on the table, right. that advocate in me speaks up. Mm. But I'm not good about receiving the anger and the mm. judgment and the defensiveness right. and in some ways the fragility of yes. other people who feel like they don't want their they don't want their beliefs to be pushed. And so and they don't want to be called out. Right. And so I was telling my therapist, like, I don't understand how I could have so much anxiety about conflict when I feel like when you're an advocate, conflict is just part of advocacy and activism. So right. it's something that I'm I'm getting support on. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Going back to the list of generalized common triggers of anxiety in the autistic brain, Nicole, is there anything from that list that stands out to you based on your own experiences with anxiety? Most of my life, I have struggled with feelings of powerlessness and inferiority, and I coped with it by obsessively reading about social skills and collecting credentials based on social emotional intelligence and leadership. And Also, I talked about this earlier, you know, using my artwork as a way to uh, gain respect. And when I was in elementary school, I noticed that, I mean, I was still bullied. Like, I wouldn't say that my artwork totally prevented me from getting bullied. But I did notice that when I made art, all the people in my grade, including the bullies, like, they had this level of awe for me. And so I noticed that um, my artwork had this this ability to deflect being shamed and being judged. And so as a kid, I just invested as much as I could to be, uh, you know, I wasn't like perfectionist with my art, but I, I felt like I strived to be 
you know, to make the best art I possibly could because I was noticing this, this social impact it was making. Um, and that, that was also really toxic. Um, racial equity training taught me how internalized interpersonal and systemic ableism works, as well as the dynamic of able-bodied privilege and how all of that impacted my feelings of powerlessness and authority. So I do want to clarify, you know, I am a white person um, and racial equity doesn't really target ableism unless it's kind of a subset topic within uh, the idea of race. But mm -hmm. what I appreciate about racial equity training is they talk about terms like tokenism, exceptionalism, fragility, uh, privilege mm -hmm. that resonated with right. me in understanding how ableism worked. And what I've discovered is that the conversation about ableism and the training about ableism is just not there to the depth mm. that racial equity training is. Right. And so for me, doing racial equity training was a massive turning point for my mental health. And it really helped me to set better boundaries with these cultural and social ignorances around autism. Mm -hmm. Um and then one of the books that I, I cannot recommend enough, this was also a huge life changer for my mental health. It's called The Healing Otherness Handbook by Stacey Reicherzer. She's a, a transgender author. And the book just kind of focuses on otherness in general, which could be gender identity, race, um, you know, your body size, your mental health, your neurodiversity. And um, there were just so many points that I just remember feeling so much uh, invigorating anger about just understanding everything that was going on um, where my issues were not a personal problem. And it wasn't even really an issue with other people that I was interacting with. It was this macro problem. And that book taught me how the psychological toll of feeling othered impact my powerlessness and inferiority. So I have overcome powerless and inferiority by healing my shame and trauma of being autistic, living my life in an unmasked anti-ableist way and practicing mindful non-attachment with fear-based beliefs I heard from others regarding collateral loss at my autism shows. And the, and the big thing that I do as an advocate is when I have people that that use that fear-based thing and they say, oh, well, if, you know, this shows bad things are going to happen. And it's always neurotypical people that say this, whether they are mm -hmm. active in the autism community or not. Like, and, and there are a handful of autistic people who say the same thing, but that's because either they've directly impacted or experienced negative things or mm -hmm. there are people who have told them that. Right. And my thought as an advocate is, how do we know this is true? Right. And yes, there are a lot of autistic people who do experience the brunt of these consequences, but I'm so passionate about advocacy and I'm so passionate about my identity as an autistic person that I have a lot of bravery to say, let's test this out. Let's mm. see if this is actually true. And if it is true, what can we do differently to change that? Yeah. Um, and, th and that takes a lot of confidence in being vulnerable. Um, but I think, again, you know, learning about what it means to be anti-racist, I have applied that so much to thinking about what does it mean to be anti-ableist? Right. So I think that gives me 
a lot of bravery and courage to make those decisions. Because if I believe everything that those people say, I am chronically living in a state of fear. What if I'm not afraid of that loss? Or what if I disprove that that loss is an automatic result? Um, so, so that mindset was not an overnight process. And I would say, you know, I'm 32. I've been doing this actively uh, probably for the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, I've been setting healthier boundaries about permission to live as a flawed human being that has the will to experience struggles. Um, living a perfect life is based on stereotype or stigma about autism that someone else has. Yeah. So when I was working as a teacher, I, I remember, and I guess I, I don't want to go into a ton of detail about this, but mm -hmm. I had people in my department that were giving me unsolicited advice about my social skills, which uh, I, I'm going to be honest, were heavily double standard. Right. Um, on the basis of neurodivergence. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, there was some commentary about things I was doing that were, to be honest, very much a reflection of the other people rather than myself. Right. But, you know, I think when you're constantly told that something's wrong with you or or you're creating the problem, on the positive note, it, it helped me to develop a growth mindset and mm. and be reflective on my social skills. But on the other hand, you know, it's like it's exhausting to always feel like oh, you're sure. the problem and that there's no conversation about what are you as the neurotypical person doing to meet me where I'm at. Right. Um, and so you have to conform to us, not us to you. Right. And so. I, I, at the time, and I was, you know, crying when I said this, but I told my department, I am working on this, but mm. I need grace to be flawed. I need to have grace to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And as much as I am willing to own up to those mistakes and improve on them, I do not want anybody around me to expect perfection. I yeah, do not sure. want to be judged for making a mistake. Give me grace the way that mm -hmm. we give our students grace. Right. And I think some people heard me and were willing to meet me where I was at on that request. And some people were not. Mm. Um, and those that were not, uh, un unfortunately have, you know, ableist bias and some of, and, you know, just have personal issues. So I feel like, what I've been doing better to advocate for my physical and mental health is just bluntly stating to people, I am flawed. I am going to make mistakes. Yeah. Be okay with that. As you know? we should be with of, everybody. And of right. course, like give me feedback on it, but, but don't expect perfection. Don't right, look right. at my behavior like it's under a microscope. Um, and, you know, when it comes to my physical health, like when I have sensory struggles, I'm yeah. getting better about being direct and saying, I'm not going to go to this thing. Uh, I don't tough it out anymore because I'm afraid, you know, oh, what what are people going to think of me if I don't go to this, you know, uh, right, right, happy right. hour with my coworkers? Sure. I'm at a point where it's like, I don't care. I have enough right. friends in my life and I, I, I get satisfaction in my job that I don't need more friends. I don't need mm -hmm. to be popular in my job. None right. of those things 
that all these neurotypical people are like, oh my God, this is so important. You need this. Mm -hmm. It is not worth compromising my physical and mental health with sensory stimuli because I need these things, quote unquote. Exactly. And so, you know, I tell myself I'm not going. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll, I'll share this story really quick, actually. Um, So the school we were working at, we had a a coworker, actually, it was somebody in your department. Um, You know, she was, she was on the uh, teacher union. She was the Mm -hmm. head of the teacher union for a school. I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. And teachers get really uh, intense when it comes to like protests, especially when it comes to increased pay. And so at the time, this was like literally right before COVID happened. Um, the the teacher was like, oh, um, are you going to this? Right. And at the time, it was like, I didn't want to be involved in the political stuff, especially because I was on a sabbatical contract. I didn't know what my employment status was for the next year. And so I, I just didn't sure. want to get involved in mm-hmm. all the protests for a district right. that I wasn't totally sure that I had sure. job security in. And the other part of it too was like, I didn't want to be among a giant crowd of people in a protest right. because of mm-hmm. my sensory overwhelm. Mm-hmm. And so I I told her, you know, I, I just, I can't, I can't do it. And immediately she's like, well, why not? Mm-hmm. You know, do you not care about teachers' rights? And, and I, I've heard this from other teachers where it's like, if you don't participate in those protests, especially right. if you have like physical or mental health uh, obstacles related to those protests, like it doesn't matter. Teachers just get pissed off at you yeah. because it's like, oh, you're not supporting the cause. Right. And because so, this is a huge thing that everybody should be passionate about. Why aren't you passionate about it? Like we are in the same way. Right. So, so here I am thinking like, oh, my reputation as a teacher in the school is going to be at risk if I don't go to this protest. And so, you know, she's kind of hounding me like, well, why not? Why not? Why not? And so, you know, I'm comfortable about talking about my autism openly. So I finally said, I'm autistic. I have sensory processing issues. I can't be in crowds. And she immediately backed off. Okay. She was like, oh, yikes. Okay. I get it. And I said, look, like, it's not that I don't support the cause. Like I absolutely want teachers to get paid more, but I can't participate in that. It's not worth me mm-hmm. having a meltdown because I, I'm overstimulated. And right. so Or you I could think, participate in other ways and it'd be fine. Yeah, exactly. So so the way that I look at it is if I risk that loss by being transparent and saying, I cannot do this because of this physical health issue, you're mm-hmm. ultimately educating people. Sure. Rather than uh, you know, and if the loss happens, so what? Sure. You know, I don't yeah, want to yeah. be around that person. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. So uh, anyway, to kind of summarize as well, um, with perceived demands and ability to cope, I have a highly sensitive nervous system, which gets dysregulated easier, easily by sensory and emotional overwhelm. And I think one of the false myths about autism is you know when you're a kid like i was diagnosed when i was two oh nicole has all these struggles with meltdowns and anxiety and fighting herself and sensory overwhelm but they'll get better as she's an adult my sensory issues have gotten increasingly worse Mm. in the last 
five or six years. I don't know why. I don't know if it is my biology, you know, getting older. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, like some days I wake up and my nervous system is strong and resilient and sometimes it's not. And Mm -hmm. I don't understand why. And I've never experienced these struggles before. It does make it really hard to self-advocate because I don't exactly know what to advocate for when my nervous system isn't really giving me cues. Yeah. So what I've been doing is I, I cannot speak highly enough of somatic therapy, which is sort of a, it's like a body-based therapy mm-hmm. practice. Somatic therapy has helped me expand my window of tolerance so that I can have increased stamina to cope with psychological stress. It's helped me to release trauma memories that cause me to live in a hyper-engaged sympathetic nervous system. Uh, I'm retraining my body to tap into the parasympathetic nervous system. I'm making different life decisions so that I can increase my ability to cope. And let me tell you, prioritizing my physical and mental health over my professional success, my social life, my romantic life, whatever Mm -hmm. all these neurotypical people say is is so important. It, It has changed my life. I quit my job as a teacher because I put my physical and mental health first as a neurodiverse person. Um, And then somatic therapy has also healed my challenges with trauma and PTSD that, you know, weren't necessarily related to my autism. Yeah. So Brett, based on Josh's experience with anxiety, is there anything from that list that stands out to you from the list of common anxiety triggers? Well, the things that resonated with me were the uh, perceived demands and ability to cope. So again, Joshua, his big struggles were transition stress and unpredictability, right? Leading to low frustration tolerance and then um, unable or unsure of how to process those emotions. So he would um, have these expectations and then he would try to meet those expectations and he would fall short um, either because he's not clear or he doesn't understand or, um, or whatever it happens to be, then he has this emotional consequence of that. So, so he's, he's told that, nope, you didn't meet that. So that's like the message is you're wrong. And then he has this um, emotional response for this, a meltdown, and, and that that's wrong. And so there's, you know, where, where am I right on this? And so he's leading to complete frustration for him and really not liking school because school is the one who's telling him, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong on how you're trying this, you're wrong in how you're processing this, you're wrong in, in how you're um, expressing your emotions. So, you know, it took a long time for him to um, accept and learn to play the game, really, um, and find a place where he got acceptance, either through his parents or his friends or teachers that he, he liked, right? And, and that took a while. Yeah. I think your your statement about always feeling like you fall short or being wrong. I think mm-hmm. that's such a universal experience of being autistic. Yeah. And I think what I'm learning is when you don't understand how ableism works, when you don't understand the medical model versus the social model of disability, you you take all of those comments personally. And, and you live in this perpetual state of perfectionism. What do I need to do to be right? What do Mm -hmm. I need to do to hit or exceed that bar? 
But when it comes to stereotypes and stigmas, it, it just doesn't matter. You will never hit that bar. And it's so, it's so difficult. Yeah. And I think that one thing that neurotypical people should do better is when are you right? When are you doing something well? We, when have people with autism, other than parents and maybe a therapist, when have we ever gotten feedback about what we're doing well when yeah. it comes to our social skills? Because if we don't get that positive reinforcement of where we are right now and what our strengths are right now without having to fix or, oh, well, you need to be led to this one place yeah. of doing well, we're never, we're never going to get past the point of thinking that autism is a strength. And instead we're, you know, from personal experience, like I believed autism was my fault and it was why I couldn't mm. make friends. Mm. And, and that shame that, yeah. and that resentment towards a diagnosis just carries with you throughout your life. Yeah. And it's Josh, so, it's so toxic. Yeah. Josh ex explained to me that for a while he's thought that autism was like a disease and that he shouldn't talk about it. And that, you know, it could, you know, whatever that, that if you think you have this thing that you cannot fix or cure and the world is telling you you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, that is not a positive place to live. Right. But if you think about other marginalized identities and mm -hmm. how it, it was othered, and, and I think in some cases, like they were seen as diseases that yes. needed to be fixed. Oh, like, definitely. Because it's not, yeah. It's no, not the typical ahead. of society, right? It, it's outside the norm. Whatever that norm is that society has identified, you are othered. And when exactly. you are othered, when you are othered, then you are um, identified as othered, you are treated as othered. And until you accept things the way they are and try to mimic us, you will always will be on the outside. Yeah, yeah. And I think when you're a kid and you don't understand that other people that are not autistic have gone through that, you know, you internalize it. You, you think that there's something wrong with you. You think that autism is something you shouldn't have. But again, that's why I think racial equity empowered me so much. And then being able to read Stacey Reitschuger's work, you know, with her being able to so transparently explain the transgender experience. Like I started understanding that other people go through those same shaming um, experiences that I did. There's an intersectionality, even though like, I don't know what it's like to be transgender. I don't know what it's like to be a person of color, but there's an intersectionality of the commonality of what it means to be othered. And, and then being able to understand it on a larger scale and understanding how people of privilege create those moments of shame. It, it at least taught me to not personalize it anymore and to make mm -hmm. empowered, mindful decisions to say, I'm not yeah. going to participate in this. Mm -hmm. Or, um, for example, I had a, a coworker at my previous school who he just like, I can't tell you how many comments. And, and this was a, a former friend. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not friends for this reason. But basically, he's like, oh, you're the most socially awkward teacher in the school. And oh, you objectively don't understand social cues. Wow. And I straight up told him that is an autistic stereotype. I understand social cues and not understand social cues as well as 
as any average person. Mm -hmm. If I buy into what he said, I'm going to spend my entire day crying, shame spiraling, possibly self-harming because, you know, somehow I was found out. But no, I'm going to say, I know that this is stereotyping. I know this is stigma. I'm not going to uh, give in to that. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to call you in to reassign your bias. And especially because you're an educator. Yes. And some people change when I speak up and other people like this individual did not. Mm-hmm. But if they don't, I'm not wasting my time with them. Yeah. Um, and so. That's, yeah, that's because they see themselves on the inside of being um, out. You know what I mean? So right, they're right. they're the they they perceive themselves as um having that privilege. And so, you know, if if I'm if I'm on the correct team, whatever that team is, um and you're on the outside, nothing you're going to say is going to change my perception of being correct or right or on the correct team or whatever however you want to whatever metaphor you want to use. So, I can understand that people are going to dig in right? Yeah. Because they don't see themselves being in the wrong of this. They're on the right. right side of whatever they think they are. Well, and when it comes to stigmas and stereotypes, well, what exact social skills are you expecting me to follow? Right. And what are you following? And I and I will say this, what I have learned, uh, a couple of things I've learned is like, there, there is no social skills rule book because social skills are so culturally complex Sure. They're generationally complex. Mm-hmm. They are complex on the basis of neurodiversity and mental health and sometimes right. physical health. Right. Um, to be able to be the sage of social skills and go into every situation knowing exactly what to do right. is impossible. Neurotypical people can't even do that. So why are we as autistic people expected to do so? And, yeah, exactly. and, and I, and I will tell you as an educator, we don't go into teaching knowing intuitively exactly what we need to do. Teaching involves a lot of social skills, training and research and, and good teachers are committed to doing that all the time. And then when you read or, or do training on systemic prejudice that relates to people of color or the LGBTQ plus community or people with disabilities, you start to understand that all of those social rules are on the basis of empowering people with privilege and marginalizing um, people who are othered. Yes. And so when I think back to all that social perfectionism and, you know, wanting to follow the rules perfect, what was I ultimately doing? I was following the social rules that was Mm -hmm. ultimately reinforcing somebody else's internalized ableism. Yes. And when I think about what it means to have good social skills as an anti-ableist, it's not necessarily about causing fights and and telling people that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. It's about being mindful of those toxic influences that make people unconsciously determine whether or not you're social, emotionally intelligent, or whether Mm -hmm. or not you're following the rule book of social skills. You, as an autistic adult, get to say, I'm not doing that. And I'm going to be empowered as an educator to tell people to think about it from a new perspective. They obviously have power of free will, uh, whether or not they want to do that. 
but yeah. you're not going to be silent about it. So that's kind of how I'm approaching my life. I'm very passionate about this. Yes, I, you are. <laughs> yes, I, I don't are. know. It's just like, I, I want to talk to people about like, how are you educating an autistic person when it comes to social skills? We're sure. not talking about the aspects about discrimination and prejudice and, and mm -hmm. the, the unconscious dynamics of privilege and systemic oppression. Mm -hmm. We're not having these conversations. And if we don't, then kids are just going to believe that they're the problem. Right. And that's not okay. Yeah. And that's a good way to phrase that. Yeah. All right. So regarding treatment, Nick Dubin uh, goes into great detail in various chapters regarding different types of treatment for people with autism that experience severe anxiety. His main focus is on cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. CBT teaches you to reassess your negative thinking patterns and habitually change, shift, change or shift uh, negative thoughts into positive thoughts. Then there are types of negative thinking patterns or cognitive distortions explained in the book, uh, such as all or nothing thinking, overgeneralization, disqualifying the positive, fortune telling, the should must trap, and personalization. We don't have time in this episode to go into detail about what those things are, but if you're yeah. interested, definitely buy the book and read about them. While some people with autism feel that CBT helps them manage anxiety, other people with autism feel that CBT doesn't work for them. CBT requires abstract thinking that might be challenging for some autistic people. Now, on the flip side, what's really good about CBT is that there's a sense of structure uh, of breaking down a thought that some people that are very, uh, well, I don't want to say left brain, but there are just some people with autism where breaking down their thought, writing it down really helps them. And there are other mm -hmm. autistic people where just constantly thinking about thinking is just doesn't make sense to them. Yeah. Um, a neurotypical therapist might interpret an autistic person's anxious thoughts as irrational, but the thought is very rational to a person with autism. And that's why it's really important if you are going to work with a therapist that they either have a strong knowledge in yes. autism and neurodiversity or they're open to learning more about it. Mm -hmm. Anxiety isn't totally rooted in the mind. Nervous system dysregulation is just as much physiological as it is mental, which again is why I am speaking so intensely and passionately about somatic therapy and craniosacral mm -hmm. Uh, really having a, a huge impact on anxiety reduction. Yeah. So Dubin also offers tips on managing anxiety based on mindfulness, exercises, and spirituality. We don't have time to go into detail on what he recommends in this episode. However, we do advise our listeners to buy the book if they want to explore options for anxiety treatment. Most websites recommend that a person with autism treat anxiety by seeking a counselor, and as we said before, ideally one that specializes in autism. And so some of those um, therapies can include cognitive behavioral, mindfulness, art or music therapy, uh, interception therapy, the ability to connect um, body senses with emotions, cranial sacral or acupuncture, yoga therapy, emotional freedom tapping, or EFT, right? Um, other things you can do is consider taking medication, of course, um, through a doctor. Um, exercise, thinking about a sensory diet. We've talked about that before. I really like that idea. Um, and 
alternative augmented communication services, a person with autism that struggles with communication and expression when anxious can consider using a tablet with phrases and pictures to help them with crisis communication. And always seeking support for anxiety is a very personal and subjective journey. All right. So, Nicole, what types of treatment did you seek out that benefited your anxiety? So before I answer that, I, I want to kind of revisit the alternative augmented communication services, because a lot mm. of people think that um, those types of tablets are only helpful for people who are nonverbal, which they are. Um, but what I've read is that when people with autism are verbal or have are on the mild, moderate end of the autism spectrum, when they get anxious or when they're kind of at that meltdown, shutdown mode, they become nonverbal. And yeah. there are a good handful of autistic people who feel that when they're self-advocating and they've lost that ability to speak in a coherent, clear way, that having that augmented device is a really succinct way for a caregiver to realize, okay, this person needs help and this is what we need to do to intervene. So it's interesting to consider. I don't know how that would work to get approval for that or how to get it set up just because I, I only see it from like the severe special needs side as a yeah. teacher. Um, but I think, I think it's, it's a good option if there are a lot of other autistic people that are talking about it. Mm -hmm. All right. So in terms of treatment that I did, um, that benefited my anxiety. Uh, so I grew up in a homeopathic, um, holistic environment because of my autism diagnosis. And that's how I received care for my entire life. I did try to use holistic supplements as a way to manage my anxiety. And for some people that works, I think at some stages in my life it worked, but in my adulthood, it wasn't working. And mm -hmm. I was spending a lot of money out of pocket, probably about like $500 a month mm -hmm. for a variety of holistic supplements that were not doing anything. Yeah. Um, I also tried CBD uh, tinctures as a way to regulate my anxiety. And initially it worked. Um, but then I received uh, medical testing related to severe anxiety. And they found out through a urine sample that there were traces of THC in the CBD I was taking, even though it wasn't supposed to have THC. And yeah. the THC was escalating my anxiety. Okay. I've talked to other people with autism, um, who s smoke marijuana or, uh, do CBD. And it, you know, again, it's a spectrum kind of thing. You know, there are some people who cannot function in the world without medical marijuana because of how it, it really plays a role in reducing their anxiety. For some reason for me, um, the, t the CBD was giving me a short calm, but it was ultimately building up and escalating my anxiety. Um, yeah because of the traces of THC. So this led me to get anti-anxiety medication and gabapentin, which reduces sensory overwhelm issues. And I can't even begin to tell you how much of, of a difference medication has made in my life. And, and I will also say doing medication was a very scary decision as somebody who grew up homeopathic and mm -hmm. had a mom who is a radical homeopath who does not yeah. like 
like basically believes Western medicine is evil. Right. Um, and, and that, that was really hard. I felt like I had to overcome an internal belief system about Western medicine in order to get the health, help, health, the health and the help I needed. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and the fact that I can get medication covered by my insurance, now I pay roughly $50 a month for all of my medication rather than $500 a month. Yeah. Um, so I take Zoloft and gabapentin. Um, I've responded well to medication. I've, I have an autistic friend who has treatment resistant mental health struggles. And so every time I'm like, oh, I did this and it's working. And he's like, oh, lucky you. It didn't work for me. Yeah. So, you know, medication is one of those things that's really subjective. I do think it's worth looking into. Um, and I will say this too, like, even if homeopathic medicine uh, really, really worked for me when it came to anxiety management, I can't afford it. When when you're a teacher and you make $43,000 a year, you can't afford to pay $500 out of pocket for holistic supplements that really aren't doing the trick. Um, you know, to have medication be covered by insurance, it was just more financially feasible for me to do that. Yeah. So I've done somatic therapy for about a year and a half now uh, with really fantastic results. In fact, it's worked so well for me that I'm doing somatic therapy training so that I can do somatic therapy for other people. Um, I, I've done yoga therapy, craniosacral, acupuncture, meditation. I've done talk therapy my entire life. I've done spiritual and new age counseling, ranging from energy healing to psychic readings. I've uh, I've done sensory dieting and sensory tools. Uh, we talked about this organization in our sensory processing disorder episode. If you live in Denver or any part of Colorado, uh, we highly recommend reaching out to the Star Institute. They are a fantastic resource for addressing the sensory aspects of anxiety. Um, I've done nutrition consulting. Um, I, I am a big believer that food intolerance and inflammation played a big role in my anxiety. Um, I do emotional freedom tapping. The book that really helped me with that was called How to Heal Anxiety When No One Else Can by a Amy Shear. Mm -hmm. Exercise sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. I found that exercise benefits my body in a lot of ways, but I don't like using exercise as a way to manage my anxiety, especially like I used to do a lot of yoga Basically, the whole reason I started doing yoga was a way to manage my anxiety. And for probably about 10 years of my life, if I didn't do yoga, my anxiety was through the roof. So it was making a really big difference. But then in my later adulthood, my late 20s and early 30s, yoga just wasn't doing it. Um, and, and I just, I really hated, you know, oh, I'm going to do this yoga exercise for anxiety and I do it and I feel calm for five minutes. And then all of a sudden the anxiety is back. Yeah. yeah. And so I realized in that moment that I didn't want to have a relationship with exercising as a way to manage my anxiety. Okay. The other problem with it too is, as you know, from this giant list that I mm -hmm. had mentioned yeah. um, about all the ways I was managing my anxiety, I had a couple of therapists that said I was being a workaholic just mm -hmm. managing my anxiety which is another big reason why I went on medication because I was overtaxing myself doing yoga, journaling, sure, yeah. going to 
two different types of therapy a week. Um, and I was financially taxing myself, um, because my anxiety was that demanding. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just sort of realized like there are, I, I needed to have a different relationship with things in my life so that it wasn't playing a role in managing my mental health. Exercise yeah. was one of them. Sure. Um, I don't make art anymore as a way to manage my anxiety. Um, for example, with the podcast, uh, you know, so every art that I make for each podcast episode, these were all drawings I wanted to do, whether I was going to start a podcast or not. Mm-hmm. But I noticed that when I was uh, doing the artwork before the podcast, I I just felt like it, it tore open a wound Mm. and, and I just, I didn't feel happy making the art and, and I would Mm. feel sad and sometimes even more anxious because I was tapping into this emotion. But then when I started uh, doing the podcast with you, I didn't have that reaction when I was making that artwork. Mm. And it made me feel like I'm not making this artwork to make my mental health feel better. I'm doing this because there there's a goal of education with the podcast there's a greater purpose out there right and so i do think it's really healthy to you know be very selective about the things that you do that help support your mental health mm-hmm. and things that you do that maybe support other aspects of your life that are not directly correlated to your mental health yeah. so and for if- me exercise uh is not about losing weight it's not about toning my muscles it's not sure. about my mental health it's really about not having a uh, sedentary life, hmm. being able to move. I've noticed that when I exercise, my my relationship with my body is better. I don't feel anger or resentment for having a highly sensitive body. I, I feel hmm. more loving and trusting. And I yeah. feel like when I do experience body-based struggles, I, I feel like exercise teaches me that I have the capability to, you know, to work through that. Yeah. Um, and it sounds and like, other, yeah. Oh no, go ahead. Yeah. It sounds like over time, um, you've come to realize a couple of things. Number one, you've come to be more aware of your body and your needs and how that has changed over time from being a child to an adult. The other thing I've, I'm realizing is that, um, not one typical therapy works throughout your life. Yeah. Right. There's there's a need sometimes to change therapies um, or go into a different direction. So if you find success in one therapy doesn't necessarily mean that that one therapy is going to be the answer and the go to throughout your life. You might Mm -hmm. you might have some success in a while, uh, but then you might have to change and be open to other things. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a point in my life um, because I have so many certifications Sure. That I was like, oh, maybe I don't need a therapist. And there was a period of time where I thought I was managing my mental health fairly well on my own. And then when I started uh, my work as a teacher, I just I couldn't get a handle on it. Yeah, and so yeah. I've learned that uh, therapy is a basic need. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think therapy is a basic need for everybody. But some people justify like, well, it's expensive and I can't afford it. Sure, right. For me it's a basic need. Yeah. It is a, it is an unarguable financial demand that yeah. I, I absolutely need to have. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to exercise. So I I've done a variety of different types of exercise. I found that, uh, what works is 
being able to pick something that is not going to create short-term or, or long-term pain in my body. So I used to really be into running. Um, but then I, I heard a lot of people who have like chronic knee pain because they run. And so I was like, I'm not going to do that. So what I've noticed, and, and the other thing too, is when I would run, like sometimes my anxiety would escalate. Mm. And I came to find out, you know, when you run that stimulates fight or flight, but yeah. also the, the, the impact, the bouncing up and down on a hard surface mm -hmm. was jangling my nervous system. So I actually found better results from running on the elliptical because mm. the elliptical doesn't have right. that the, jarring motion. Yeah. You're not airborne for a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, so the and then the other thing that's tricky too is when I learned through working with the Star Institute that I get vestibular overwhelm, um, that impacts what type of exercise I do. And so when I exercise, it's it's like what you said about therapy. I think it's good to have a variety of different types of exercises. And I yeah. check in with my body and I say, okay, what do you feel like doing today? Yeah. Some days I want to go outside and just walk. Mm -hmm. I don't want to run. I just, you know, I just want to move my body. I want to be in the sun. I want to listen to a podcast. Some yeah. days I, I really want to get my uh, heart rate up. So I go on the elliptical, listen to a podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, what I really like about running, I just love the doing something repetitive and mindless mm -hmm. yeah, for 30 yeah. minutes while I just, you know, watch a show. Um, but sometimes, you know, I, I really like doing yoga or I like strength training because certain parts of my body are still while other parts are being very slow and deliberate building muscle tone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, um, I think it's good to have variety and I think it's also really good to listen to your body. And it's so important to figure out what type of environment you're exercising in. Yeah. Um, because the environment, especially if it's indoors or outdoors has a huge impact on, you know, the sensory stress that you're getting from exercising. Yeah. Um, a very important note in conclusion to everything I shared, if you become a workaholic managing your mental health mm -hmm. in which your entire free time is filled with activities to regulate your anxiety, which that was me. Yep. Uh, you Important definitely disclaimer. need, yeah, you need to seek medication <laughs> therapy or inpatient mental health care. And, and I will tell you as much as I felt confident in my ability to regulate myself, um, I feel so much better taking a medication that regulates my body for me and I don't have mm. to do anything else about it. Right. So this is through your pediatrician or did you, how did you decide what medications to take? So it's kind of a long story. Uh, the very brief nutshell is that um, the year of 2021, 2022 school year, my anxiety was chronically horrible yeah. uh, for a variety of reasons. And I was just uh, trying to tough it out. And also during that time, um, I was planning a wedding. I was planning my own wedding. Sure. And I Good hoped luck. that when summer break came that I could get a break from it all and I could just focus on planning my wedding and be done with mm -hmm. it. And my wedding was at the end of June. A week before my wedding, uh, I had very intrusive suicidal thoughts. Mm. And I had anxiety that was so significant that I was experiencing physical pain. Wow. I was experiencing burning in my chest, uh, you know, like 
when you hit your funny bone and your nervous system jangles, yes. that's how I felt in my entire body. The mm. back of my neck was burning. Mm. Um, and I remember like it, it just came on so suddenly and I have, I've experienced intrusive suicidal thoughts before, but never to this extreme. Right. And, and, and it, it really caught me off guard because I was getting ready for my wedding. Uh, they're really at the, other than, um, I don't think my job was helping my mental health, but I think when it came to like the people in my life, like my husband, my parents, um, my, our friends and family that were coming to our wedding, like the wedding itself, uh, was going really well. And I just like, why am I wanting to end my life? Right. And that scared me because I was having nightmares about, uh, jumping off of our high rise apartment balcony. And, and then when I woke up, I had like a panic attack. My husband was like, Oh my God, (laughs) what do we need to do? We ended up going to the hospital, which don't go to the hospital for a mental health episode because they don't know what to do. And you get charged $2,000. They don't do anything. I didn't know at the time that I should have just gone to an inpatient mental health clinic. Okay. And, um, and I remember like some people had suggested it. Uh, I remember being in the hospital and, and there was a nurse that said, maybe this is a better option for you. And I was scared because I, I was so close to the day of my wedding and I didn't want to reschedule my wedding, mainly because I was burned out planning my wedding. Um, and I just wanted it to be over with, but it's scary. It's scary to be that close to your wedding. And then all of a sudden you can't go because you have a a health crisis. Right. And so I I made the decision, no, I'm not going to do this. Uh, maybe I'll do it after I get done with the wedding and the honeymoon. Maybe that would help. The next day, uh, I just laid in bed and I, I just, the anxiety got worse. And I was like, if I need to go to an inpatient mental health clinic, like how exactly am I supposed to live my life? And meanwhile, right. my, the wedding planner is like bombarding me with like, you got to do this. You got to do that. I waited one more day. And then Thursday, the, the following day, I was in so much physical pain from anxiety in a way that I've never experienced before. And I realized if I was in this much pain from a physical health perspective, I I would go to the hospital. So why wouldn't I do that for my mental health? Yeah. So I, I called an in a local inpatient clinic. Mm -hmm. I told them what was going on and I said, what do I do? And they said, you got to come in now. Yeah. And, uh, and I just had to, um, resign to the fact that, uh, the wedding was not a priority compared to my mental sure. health. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea what was going on, but when I got there and it was, it was voluntary admission, there's, you know, sure. it wasn't involuntary. So I, right. I had rights and they did tell me that the max amount of days I would stay there was six days and which ironically, like if I stayed the full days, I would have gotten out at least a day or two before our, my rehearsal dinner. So I was like, okay, yeah, this is going to work. And, and again, I think the, the biggest fear of going into an inpatient clinic is sacrificing your rights. Um, because I, I, again, I had this wedding coming up and I didn't know, um, if I was going to be able to get out in time for my wedding. 
And, you know, I, everybody understood. And, and, uh, my parents were like, look, if, you know, if we have to reschedule the wedding, it's fine. And I'm like, I'm just yeah. not going to think about the wedding. I'm just going to focus exactly. on my mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, and I will say I had the most, it was probably one of the best experiences of my life being in this inpatient clinic. Mm. The, the staff was great. I made friends. Um, I, my anxiety significantly went down yeah. and I, and I think when I look back, uh, on why those suicidal, uh, thoughts had come up, I was so burned out and I was so dysregulated that my body was screaming for help. Mm. And I knew for at least a couple of months that I needed medication, but it was taking a long time, uh, you know, cause you got to talk to a psychiatrist. You got to find one that works okay. for you. You yep. got to see what their schedule's like. I I had a psychiatrist book, but she wasn't available on yes. you know for like a, a for like two or three weeks when I booked it. My body was letting me know in that moment I need meds now. I yeah. can't wait. Right. So that's really uh, ultimately what came out of um, being there. And again, you know. I'm facing that fear as somebody who grew up with a, a holistic mindset, like what's going to happen when I take medication? Sure. Am I going to have side sure. effects? When I took gabapentin, I can't even begin to tell you how much relief I felt. Um, it, it was, it was life-changing for me mm. and I felt so cared for by so many people who were passionate about what they did. And as somebody who's passionate about helping, you know, others, um, yeah. especially teenagers to to receive that support from others was just I, I felt so grateful. Mm. I felt so um, I felt so clear in being able to talk to other people there about what their mental health struggles were. It was it was super educational. And I walked away, you know, being in touch with some of the friends I made in this place. I mean, literally I came out, uh, saying I am so happy that I went to this place. And yeah. then I was only there for four, three days, something mm -hmm. like that. So mm -hmm. it all worked out. I got the support I needed. Yeah. Um, I basically told my wedding planner, I am, uh, not going to do any wedding planning, right. uh, because I need to focus on my mental health. Oh, for sure. Um, my wedding happened, my honeymoon happened. Um, so long story short, uh, I had to get to a really extreme crisis place I to, see. to get medication. And again, I think I waited because it took such a long time for me to register, uh, that I needed to look at treatments outside of hol holistic medicine right. to get the support I needed. So and things uh, were coming to a crisis point. I mean, you had the yeah. wedding, you had other things going on and, um, you were, it's easy to overlook your own bodily needs because you had these other outside things happening to you. Oh yeah. And when you're a teacher, you're thinking about others over yourself. Uh, I actually did learn, uh, my mom told me that when I was nine or 10, she did consider putting me on anti-anxiety medication, which blows my mind because mm. she's such a, right passionate, holistic medicine person. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, wow, my anxiety must have been really bad yeah. at a young age if she was willing to look into that path. 
but right. we ultimately didn't uh, go on medication at that time. And I don't know if it was because she was concerned about development stuff. Um, so, so medication was considered, but mm -hmm. I did not look into medita uh, medication until I was 31. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Now I know we're going to have an, uh, another podcast dedicated to um, suicidal thoughts and things like that, but I just want to take a moment now, if you are experiencing uh, suicidal thoughts, um, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 988. Help is available. Speak with someone today, 988. Yeah, and, and it's also important for autistic people to understand that when you have those intrusive thoughts and they scare you because you don't want to kill yourself, it is your nervous system letting you know something needs to change mm. now. Yeah. It's like a meltdown. When, yeah. when a meltdown occurs, the caregiver has to drop everything, get you out of that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, stressful environment. Your mm -hmm. nervous system is telling you the exact same message. You need to make major changes. And if you don't, your mental health and your physical health is going to scream at you and make you suffer until yeah. you get the help you need. So make sure you listen to your body and be open-minded to major changes and transitions you need to make in order yeah. to support your physical and mental health. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. So Brett, what types of treatments help Josh with his anxiety? Well, there's two that I can think of that were effective. Um, of course, you have talk therapy that we've you know been in and out of throughout his, his young life. Um, and then there was EFT therapy. So the talk therapy was good because, you know, we were, you know, what's the source of your stress and kind of talking him through it. Anticip anticipating and demystifying the unknown of, of future events like those transitions and trying to figure out, okay, what are some steps that I can take to demystify this future change? Or, you know, what, how can I reduce my stress based on now I have knowledge of what that's going to look like? So that was the, the talk ter therapy thing that we did. The EFT thing was really interesting because um, a lot of times, um, Josh gets so wrapped up in the moment and gets stressed out and the anxiety happens that doing EFT therapy breaks that, breaks that cycle, right? So if you know what, what tapping is, and we're, you know, we're going to have a episode on this, I think, is that um, it, it kind of distracts you, right? Because a lot of times you get just so um, in the moment that the EFT just like, it distracts you and it forces you to consider something else like, oh, like, you know, okay, let me distract myself a little bit and, and try to bring yourself down from whatever that anxious or anxiety moment was. Well, and, oh. and part of the benefit of EFT is that your body has its own uh, stored emotional stress and your mind mm -hmm. does too. So mm -hmm. what I was noticing is that uh, the feelings in my body were not congruent with the feelings in my mind. So even mm -hmm. if I was doing... Yeah positive thinking and I was, I was, uh, restructuring, you know, the negative coping habits of my thoughts, like catastrophizing and black and white thinking, it wasn't necessarily making my body calmer. And yeah. so that's why EFT can be really helpful because it's about, uh, moving that energy, that stuck mm. energy out of your yeah. body. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it's, it's, um, there are just so many different parts of your nervous system that react to anxiety. So 
what what we've learned as we've talked about the neurology of different types of autistic behaviors, there's an emotional part of your brain that hijacks. And then there's your vagus yeah. nerve, which is burned out trying to, you know, get you to function. And yeah. you, your rational prefrontal cortex just doesn't have the ability to overpower those other uh parts of your brain that are, that are going to cause your body to go into crisis. And for me in particular, like my thoughts don't always control the outcome of my body. Mm. And I think some people do, you know, I think mindfulness practices believe that your thoughts are the cause of your pain and suffering. And I think that to an extent that's true, but I think that's why uh, focusing on body-based intervention has helped me just as much as mental intervention um, because I've realized my body has a completely different experience and perspective on my life than my mind does. Yeah. And my ego, uh, which is biased in autism masking, might silence my body being in distress. So then that causes my body to be in distress and I don't understand why. But it's yeah. because there isn't um, a dialogue or a good relationship between my my body and me where I'm able to understand where my body is coming from. And then mm -hmm. when I do, I'm able to make the necessary changes so that I'm a little more regulated. Okay. All right, let's transition a little bit and talk about anxiety as it relates to an autistic person in the workplace. Okay, so Nicole, what has been your experience with anxiety as a working professional and what did you do to support yourself? So work created a huge amount of stress for my anxiety, especially being a teacher. I mm -hmm. went through a lot of transition stress from the lifestyle change of a student to a working professional. The first three years of teaching are very difficult for new teachers, as I'm sure you can attest as a former yes. educator. Yes. On top of that, I experienced extra adversity by having my first three years of teaching happening during COVID. Yeah, exactly. Throw in COVID on top of all of that. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is, I don't know who COVID was harder for because our instructional coaches were always like, wow, the newer teachers are doing better than the veteran teachers. Oh, I know. I was, I the, felt so much like a first year teacher. don't know any better. They yeah. just show up and do what they need to do. But the veteran teachers, I think were so, uh, they had a hard time with transitioning to teaching in a new way. Yeah. Um, and teaching in a very hands-off remote way. That was, that was really difficult. Yeah, definitely. So though... I worked in mostly positive accepting schools. I experienced stress and anxiety with social dynamics with students, mm -hmm. coworkers, administrators, and parents as any teacher would. Yes. Uh, running a successful lesson plan, having good classroom management strategies, fear of school shootings, um, and, and especially from the perspective of keeping my safe, myself and other students safe. Sensory struggles and burnout with long work days with, and social overstimulation. Um, I think what people know but forget about if they're not in education, uh, teaching is not an eight-hour job, you, yeah. especially if you're a club sponsor, if you are part of an outside educational committee, then you have to do back-to-school night. You have to oh, yeah, chaperone sure. the school dances. Uh some people are asked to be volunteers at the sporting events. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's parent-teacher conferences. Sure. I mean, it's a long there's, day. There's grading and all lesson planning, all these things, yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that new teachers don't understand the boundaries of 
don't take work home with you. But at the same time, when you're a new teacher starting from scratch, lesson planning mm-hmm. is a huge amount of work. So I would it do my lesson plans in the summer so that I wouldn't have to balance that with grading and classroom management and meetings and all that stuff. Um, and so I do think it gets easier when you have more experience with teaching because you you don't have to lesson plan over and over every year. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are some teachers that do. I don't know how they do it. I know that they do it because they want um, variety. And after a certain amount of years teaching, you get bored teaching the same lesson plan. But at the sure. same time, like, I just want to be done with lesson planning. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, there were also limitations with the expression and disclosure of my autism identity and advocacy passion. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, it, It's really complicated to explain uh, in this episode. I think to summarize, I think that it's kind of an equity and inclusion educational limitation. Okay. People are open to diversity. I did feel very welcomed and valued for what I brought to the table as an autistic person. Right. However, um, there was a limitation in how to support me, mm. uh, which really just came to people just didn't know what to do. It, it had nothing to yeah. do with bullying or sure. prejudice or anything like that. People just didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, there was stigma and ignorance that uh, was really hard to navigate only because, um, again, when I when I was studying it from racial equity training, it's like when a person of color comes up to a white person and says, hey, you know, you're doing something that's racially stigmatic. And then the white person gets defensive and they're mm-hmm. trying to justify that they're a good person. And, and the person yeah. of color is is a bad person for speaking up. So right. in some ways there was an intersectionality where I experienced that trying to have conversations with my coworkers who felt like, you know, oh, well, I can't do anything wrong because I work with diverse kids. Right, right, right. Um, so that was really difficult to overcome. And and then the worst part of it all is I can't tell you how many times I'd I'd have these conversations of calling people in, trying to have an educational moment of saying, you know, what you're doing is stigmatic. Let's talk about how we can handle this differently. And then their response is, oh, you don't understand social cues. Let me teach you. Yeah. And what I learned from that is when you are putting the onus on the autistic person and saying, oh, you don't understand social cues, what that's actually doing is the person with privilege is avoiding personal responsibility Mm. of, Understanding that intention is not the same as impact. Impact is more important. And also, it removes the onus of self-reflection, of apologizing, Mm of of being humble and saying, Mm -hmm. wow, what can I do differently? And not every educator has that capability. Not every human has that capability. But it was really hard because I went into education thinking people had that skill. Um, but what's really hard is, uh, it's that whole issue of people saying like, oh, I work with diverse kids, therefore I'm an ally. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean that you know exactly what it means to be an ally. And part of being an ally is being able to hold space when you are called in on some stigmatic thing that you're doing, which you will have because mm-hmm. it's an unconscious bias. It has to do with conditioning. It has to do with a lack of exposure. 
And a lot of these people, you know, they didn't have coworkers that were on the autism spectrum. And I felt that, I, I guess I can only speak from the perspective of neurodiversity, but I often felt like I was treated as if I was a student. And, and that's because a lot of my coworkers only have skills to talk to people with autism as if they are A, 14 to 18, right. and B, uh, in a position of struggle. Mm. When you are a teacher and you're working with a kid with autism, you're in a position of authority. Right. But when you have a coworker that's on the autism spectrum, you don't know how to interact with that person other mm-hmm. than from the perspective of being in a position of authority. Right. And when you interact with that person from the position of authority, it is so offensive and stigmatizing to an adult right. with autism because it makes us feel socially inept. And yeah. trying to be able to communicate that and having people push back and say, well, you know, let's use all these stigmas and stereotypes as excuses to get out of my own social emotional education. That was really hard. And it created a huge amount of burnout for me. Hmm. Um, But I think on the positive side, it made me realize that, oh, yeah, this is kind of what people of color go through. This is what transgender and uh, other LGBT people go through. So it made me reflect on my privilege as a white cisgender heterosexual person mm-hmm. and say, okay, well, what do I need to work on with, when I'm called in? Yeah. Um, and so I think that in a way, having that experience was really valuable for my education with allyship and advocacy. But at the same time, I just got burned out and it just got to the point where I just got so tired working with neurotypical people. And really the only people that I truly had a positive experience with, and I will say it was it was a majority of people at my school, but my main allies were all the teachers in special education, the counselors, the main office people, the school nurse, and the mm-hmm. administrators. And I'm so grateful that those people got it and really helped me to thrive, but it's really shitty that there were other people I worked closely with that didn't get it. Yeah. Um, so the way I dealt with that was by getting help from mentors at my job and outside therapy. I also modified my work lifestyle to be more sensory accommodating and developed a better self-care routine at home. I um, was setting boundaries with not taking work home, which is teaching 101. There's always yeah. going to be work. It doesn't need to get done that night unless you procrastinate uh, grading. I mean, the worst part is like when I, when I take two weeks to grade, cause I'm like working on something else and I, and I have like my high achiever students that are like, I haven't gotten a grade yet. When are you going to give me a grade? Oh, I know. Right. (laughs) So the trick is you grade their projects and then you take your time with everything else. But that is so annoying when you're like, I have so much work. Mm -hmm. I can't just drop everything and grade for you. But, you know, sometimes you just have to. So anyway, sometimes knowing that my struggles uh, were new teacher struggles rather than autistic struggles helped, which I think having you as a mentor really helped. Um, Because, again, it's being able to just be kind to yourself and understanding like, wow, everybody goes through this. And I can talk to all these people in my building and get help. But then when it came to the autistic struggles, then I could go to my therapist or I could go to you or yeah. I can talk to an administrator that gets autism and I can say, 
okay, I noticed this autistic struggle that's impacting my teaching. What can I do differently? Mm -hmm. So sometimes I overcame my anxiety through work experience, which I think is just the reality of teaching. The more experience I had with teaching, the less yes. anxiety I had dealing with new challenges. I will yes. say probably one of the hardest struggles, especially for having social anxiety, is learning how to be the bad cop mm. as a teacher. And you just get to a point where, uh, especially at the school we worked at, where I think that like the previous teacher before me was very hands-off. So the students felt like they could do whatever they wanted. And then sure. I came in with a lot of structure. So there was a lot of confrontation between mm -hmm. me and certain students where they were fighting for their autonomy and mm -hmm. they were very assertive about it. And it just got to the point where I had to say, if I'm going to make this class function the way it needs to, I got to lay down the law. Yeah, and sure. I can't even begin to tell you as an autistic person with social anxiety, it takes a lot of balls to get to the place where you just lay down the law. And right. it of takes, course, yeah, you're going to have kids that are yeah. going to, you have, have kids that are going to fight you on it and you just stick your ground and you say, yeah. this is what's happening. Yep. And so I do think that learning how to be a bad cop really helped me. Uh, I think with my advocacy in some ways, um, and I think what it, what it helped me with teaching was that I could start out being really empathetic and mm -hmm. a gentle problem solver and not being the kid's friend, but, you know, saying like, Hey, like, we're on the same page. And then if they don't follow up, like, okay, let's have an accountability conversation. Worst case yeah. scenario, if I've got to be blunt with them and that's what gets them to see the light, at least I have that. Yeah. But it took, it took at least two or three years to get to that place of being mm -hmm. comfortable with tapping into that part of myself. Yeah, for And sure. I think that that's part of teaching, you know, as we grow, like sometimes we have these strengths. Uh, you know, there are some teachers who do not like raising their voice. Mm -hmm. I have a naturally loud voice. Um, mm -hmm. And then as you continue to teach, you start to get out of your comfort zone. You start to develop these skills that that are unfamiliar to you. Um, but yeah. that just comes from work experience. That doesn't come from being in an education program or reading a book. It just comes from the trial and error, going through that stress yeah. and finding ways to rise above that stress. Mm -hmm. So all this being said, Sometimes my anxiety struggles were so bad that despite having a ton of support at work and at home, I still struggled. And it got to the point where I had to reevaluate if teaching was the best fit for my physical and mental health. And part of that had to do with the lifestyle of being a teacher. Um, I realized that I cannot, I cannot have a job where I work with 130 plus people. Yeah. It's too taxing on my nervous system. So I need a career where I can still have the same impact like I would mm -hmm. as a teacher, but just less people. Yeah. Um, as well as just, you know, there was there was too much ignorance in my job. And I just never felt like I could overcome it. And I never felt like I was truly changing people. Yeah. And that's really hard when the the whole topic of neurodiversity in the workplace is new. And I also had a coworker in special education who said, how can you even advocate for neurodiversity when three quarters of the people in our building don't even know what neurodiversity is? 
So that ignorance really placed so many barriers on my ability to express myself as an advocate. And I did, but it didn't get anywhere. And that really, it made me feel unsafe. It made me feel unheard. And that was unconsciously taking a very huge toll on my physical and mental health. So I realized through therapy that I needed a career where I could have more autonomy with my physical and mental health accommodations. Mm. And I also wanted a career that allowed me to be openly autistic and help people with autism without dealing with other people's ignorance and stigmatic bias towards autism. And based on what my therapist and I agreed on, private practice counseling uh, is the right path for now. Okay. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, Somatic therapy helped a lot during my work as a teacher. It it changed my life. I felt that somatic therapy helped the most while I took breaks from work so that we could address core issues without getting distracted by other anxiety triggers. So after I left my job in December, um, because my mental health was just, it was to the point where I thought that I would have to be admitted again into an inpatient clinic. Yeah six months after I'd already gone into an inpatient clinic. Mm -hmm. um, I can't tell you how much of a difference it's been to have that time off and just focus on core traumas from my past core shame Mm -hmm. issues. Yeah. Because when I was working, I'd come into my therapy session and I'd just be like, well, this coworker said this and this student did that. And, and, and all of those things ultimately became distractions Mm. from us going deeper and healing the core issues that would ultimately make me more resilient in another job. Awesome, yeah. Yeah. So Brett, what advice or guidance have you given to Josh when it comes to helping him overcome anxiety at work? So a lot of it came about, um, you know, knowing what your anxieties are, right? What are your tasks? Get clarification of tasks. What are your obligations? Know what your obligations are. Know what your responsibilities are and talk to your employer. Can't be shy about talking to your employer because they can't read your mind. Um, Have that open communication, right? Talk about your concerns um, and then understand the transitions, why they happen and when they happen. So fortunately for Josh, he had um, work at school experience. So he had somebody that he could work with who knew he was autistic and had that really good communication. And he had a low stress job. I mean, it was kind of checking in um, kids at a a gaming area of the school and it was kind of a a low stress kind of thing but you know he got that experience as i'm working i'm i have responsibilities i have a boss i have obligations and he felt you know he's told me many times he felt that he had a good connection with his employer and that helped a lot that's good what do you think parents teachers and employers unintentionally doing to make the anxiety of a person with autism worse yeah. What could they do differently to better support a person with autism? Yeah, I think it's the assumption that everybody's the same, right? That I can treat a person with autism the same as all of my other employees, right? Um, and what happens is, is that the expectations of, and I'm, I'm coming at this from the thing that frustrated Joshua the most was unpredictability and changes in routine. So, you know, the employer is like, oh, you know, we're going to change this or your schedule just changed, you know, last minute, or I need you to work tomorrow or, um, you know, you were doing this. Now you're going to be doing that. And, you know, I don't have time to go into detail. I'm going to train you like in 60 seconds and I'm going to expect that you're going to be able to do all these things. So a lot of those are the, you know, the expectations that they can handle it. It's fine. 
because they don't they don't look like they're autistic, right? They look like everybody else, and there's a, a stigma, a stereotype there. Well, and I think people with ADHD also go through that struggle too. Yeah. Yeah, and and I will say this in general, um, having read uh, books about racial equity and uh, white privilege, the topic of diversity in general is really sticky because people, it's like people are excited about diversity because it makes them look inclusive. Mm. But equity and inclusion is not about just hiring somebody who's diverse. Yeah, It, it really is about yeah, taking time to understand the needs of that individual and the needs of the group that individual is associated with, which, you know, in defense of employers, that can be a lot of work, but I do think it's worth it. And, and again, equity and inclusion skills are universally applicable to any group. It's not yeah. just, you know, oh, I need to learn one set of skills for people of color and another set of skills for LGBTQ right, right, right. Now, granted, disability and neurodiversity, that's all about accommodation, which can look different um, compared to, you know, LGBTQ plus needs and um, people of color needs, unless there's a, a, you know, those people are disabled. But again, I think like, it's that from like a racial equity perspective, it's like color blindness. Mm. It's that idea of like, we don't see color, we're going to treat you like people. And some right. people argue that that's the way you should handle things, you know, the golden rule. Right. But then other people believe that you really, if you're using the golden rule and you're a white person, you're treating a person of color based on the unconscious bias of being white. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily support people of color. And so that's where it gets really sticky. And I noticed that yeah. uh, as somebody who, you know, was the only autistic person at my job. And when I talked to other autistic people, other autistic advo autism advocates or people with ADHD, you know, the same thing kind of comes up. We don't want to be treated as if you don't see our autism. We don't want to mm. be treated as if you don't see our ADHD. And I remember yeah. when I was leaving my job, my principal said, well, you know, I just never would have known you were autistic. And I see you as this capable educator and I don't see you for your autism. And I just I knew what he was saying was a compliment. Right. And on the one hand, I was like, I'm so glad that we're finally at a point about the understanding of autism where it's not like the stereotypical assumption of like, oh, you're autistic. You you will never be capable of teaching. Like right. at least people are seeing that like, uh, wow, I see you as a capable teacher aside from you being autistic. But on the other hand, it's like, I am autistic. Right. I am an autistic educator. I want to be seen for that. And goddamn, I want to be seen for that <laughs> because I'm very passionate about advocacy. Yes. And, and so I, I think that that the whole not seeing an identity is sort of like a safety net for em employers. But what that ultimately does is it prevents people from being seen for who they are and their yeah. needs being valid. And And I've heard that argument in books that talk about race and books that talk about autism. Mm -hmm. If you if you say, oh, I don't see this, what you're doing is you're rejecting that person's humanity that comes from the foundation of them having a particular identity. Yeah. And being able to see that identity comes from doing a lot of research and doing community involvement 
and directly engaging with those diverse people rather than, you know, oh yeah, I get it. I'm an ally because I'm associated with these people. Right, I right. lead these people. I'm sure. friends with these people. That's not enough. Mm -hmm. And so I, I agree. I think that uh, having the label of we are a diverse workplace is not enough. Yeah, It doesn't gotta, support yeah. diverse employees the way yeah. that I think people with privilege think it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're, we're kind of talking about this already, but do you have any other suggestions for employers to help um, support people with autism? Yeah, just like autistic people have a limit with stamina, resources, and patience during periods of distress, so do parents, teachers, and employers. Mm -hmm. Some of those people are highly sensitive, just like us. Some of those people may be neurodivergent, even if they are undiagnosed. Uh, some people don't have time or energy dedicated to supporting us. Some people have mental health struggles that make them incapable of being a reliable support person. Some people lack good social emotional intelligence skills, including in jobs where you think that that demand would be there. Yes. Um, and, and I will add this too, like if you've been a teacher for let's say at minimum three to five years, and then you change to being a counselor or you change to be an assistant principal or you change to be a principal, mm -hmm. you know, there is a social emotional learning curve as you get promoted within a school. Oh, for so, sure. I, so I get that. And I think that what I struggle with sometimes is because I've read a lot about leadership, I do wanna give grace to my leaders to understand that they're human, they have a learning curve, especially when right. you have a principal who's like in their first year being a principal mm -hmm. or they're they're new to being a principal during COVID. Yeah. I, I wanna allow that humanness, but I don't wanna allow that humanness to the extent that it compromises my well-being. Of course. Um, and, and I've, unfortunately, uh, that's where a lot of my shame comes in is putting other people's feelings before my own. Mm -hmm. And there comes a point, especially when you experience stigma, where where it doesn't matter where their social emotion and uh, emotional intelligence skills are. You have to set your boundaries. You yeah. have to hold them accountable to educate themselves. Mm -hmm. And a good leader will rise to the occasion and listen and take time to learn about it. Um, and then lastly, some people will have implicit biases based on stigmas and stereotypes about autism which can impact the degree of their frustration tolerance. And again, I think that's why equity and inclusion is so important because yeah. we as educators think, well, how could we have stigma and stereotypes? Because we're passionate about helping right, others, right. but we don't understand how implicit bias works and how mm -hmm. unconscious it truly is. And so I think that's why it's so painful when people are called in to recognize their implicit yeah. bias because yeah, they don't sure. want to admit that that bias is there, but mm -hmm. everybody has it. Right. It's important for people with autism to recognize that just because someone is our parent, teacher, or employer doesn't mean that they have the capacity to support us. That's more often than not a reflection of them than on you. So we need to be able to seek people out that do have the stamina to support us and sometimes someone's capacity can increase or decrease over time. Likewise, a parent, teacher, and employer can take steps to educate themselves on autism or talk to the person with autism to get a better understanding on how to support them. 
That said, autistic adults need to learn how to advocate for themselves. So related to this topic, it's really hard to ask that of an employer because they're really busy and you don't want to ask that of everybody. You know, you only really want to ask it of the people that you work closely with. Mm. Uh, So in the example of teaching, that would be your department chair, your evaluator, uh, maybe your principal if it's relevant, but yeah. The principal is not going to directly manage you. Um, Not everybody has the stamina to, you know, invest in educating. But you have a right as a person with autism to speak out and say, if you're going to support me, this is going to help our working relationship. And yes, a person with autism also needs to do the work to understand themselves, to advocate the people around them. But it Mm -hmm. is not fair for the person with autism to do all of the work themselves. Yeah. It, it's okay if the person with autism maybe finds the resources, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that like, not, not every person with autism wants to be the teacher. We didn't sign up right. to always educate people and then have them react like students who don't want to be in our social studies or art class. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. Um, don't push a person with autism to behave a certain way or shame or yell at them for being anxious all the time because it burns you out. And I'll admit, you know, I they, I have mentors that I loved and respected and understood their humanness. I know they got I got on their nerves because they were burned out. Mm. I get it. Um, but you have to understand that when you're burned out and you have that response, it does create shame-based trauma mm. for a person with autism. And ultimately, when you're saying, oh, you need to behave a certain way, that's not ultimately benefiting the person with autism. That's just benefiting the mentor, Mm -hmm. relieving the burden so that they're not on demand all the time. Yeah. Um, Forcing a person with autism to do something that increases their anxiety will also create a trauma response and PTSD. Instead, build your sensory and emotional tolerance, find support strategies that are neurodiverse friendly, connect with other people that have expertise on autism, and get therapy for yourself. Otherwise, redirect the person with autism to somebody that can adequately support them better than you can. I will tell you, being a new teacher, the best thing that helped is when I disclosed my autism, which, you know, I I do acknowledge not every person with autism is comfortable to do. But one of the beautiful things that happened when I did is I had instructional coaches and administrators saying, oh, you got to connect with this person. Oh, you got to connect with that person. That's how you and I met. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, chances are there are not a lot of, if any, autistic teachers in your job. But I, I think at every school I've worked at, there's at least one faculty member that has a child on the autism mm-hmm. spectrum. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, the special educators, obviously they know what they're doing. They are, every special educator I've worked with has been my allies and advocates. And, nice. you know, second to that were the counselors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that maybe something that would have helped that I, I didn't get connecting with other employers that have ADHD or employers, coworkers, whatever. Um, You know, sometimes I meet people with ADHD and even though ADHD and autism are not the same thing, that that commonality of being neurodiverse, it's like, oh my God, 
I, it's one of the tribe, I guess. Like sure. I, yeah, I've met yeah, people I with ADHD that are just like over the moon thrilled yeah. to meet another neurodiverse person. And then yeah. there are other people with ADHD that are like, yeah, I have ADHD, but I'm not going to have a friendship with you based on that. But yeah, for but sure. it, 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 it soothes the soul. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, that makes it really helpful, um, you know, to, for administrators to really be in tune of like, uh, teachers' personal lives. So then that way those connections are there. Um, the other thing that I think is super helpful for employers is understanding the medical model versus the social model of disability. Yes. When neurotypical authority figures buy into the medical model, then they put the effort on the person with autism to change to mm-hmm. accommodate their neurotypical normed needs. Mm-hmm. The social model causes a neurotypical person to put more work into accommodating the person with autism and could potentially cause them to reevaluate what it means to have neurotypical able-bodied privilege. Mm. This can be difficult and anxiety provoking for a neurotypical caregiver, especially if they are burned out and spread thin. But it's important that people with autism aren't the ones carrying the burden of their own anxiety. And ultimately, all of that work does end up creating a neurodiverse, friendly workplace environment. And I'm sure you and I agree, if teachers are accommodated in their workplace, students are better accommodated. And and the reverse can Mm -hmm. be said, too. Mm -hmm. If we have transgender students that are demanding gender neutral bathrooms that impacts faculty that also feel the same way so they feed off of each other and a more inclusive environment benefits everybody including people who don't have that identity yeah when it comes to teachers and employers specifically it's okay to acknowledge that we cannot give the person with autism individualized attention when we are spread thin running a classroom or a company Mm -hmm. I've been on both sides, so I get it. Do what you can with the time and energy you have. Collaborate with that person with autism support resources. If it becomes too stressful for you and the person with autism, then it might be good to consider an alternative placement. Teachers often get cynical about accommodating students with learning disabilities because they are burned out trying to accommodate so many students especially with the increased diagnostic rate of autism and ADHD. That doesn't give teachers the right to act cold or harsh towards a student with autism. Instead, teach to the IEP. Make your instruction neurodiverse friendly so all students benefit. Now, Mm -hmm. in the context of what I said earlier about, you know, teachers are just slammed with uh, IEPs and 504 accommodations. In one semester, I had... 30 kids with learning needs. Yeah. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. And as a new teacher, as somebody who is a neurodiverse advocate, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And I have to track how are they doing? I have to have really good documentation of Mm -hmm. what that kid needs so I don't accidentally forget it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I understand that like teachers are so tired of giving so much individualized attention to every single student yeah. and the the increased rate of diagno- diagnosis for various neurodiverse uh things you know including dyslexia mm-hmm. syndrome all of that oh absolutely i yeah. mean it definitely burns teachers out 
But I think that's why, you know, just making teaching neurodiverse friendly is helpful because then right. that way you're, you're applying it to everybody. And chances are, you know, when you have 30, <laughs> 30 learning needs, that's probably about at least a third of your class. I mean, it, it helps everybody. Yeah. So, For so sure. I think it's good to, to teach in ways that reduce the burnout on you mm -hmm. and, and uh, increases the benefits for everybody and, and not looking at neurodiverse kids in a vacuum. Yeah. The last thing I'll say is that parents, teachers, and therapists also need to coach a person with autism, not to depend on their friends or a new significant other on anxiety support, or it can create burnout and alienation. Mm. Talk about what support looks like differentiated between friends, significant others, parents, teachers, employers, and therapists. And I am super guilty of this. Mm. And as an adult, it has been a huge learning curve to learn. If I'm having anxiety, how do I express that to various people in my support system? And how close am I to that person that they can be a source of support? Yeah. It's hard to know that when you're autistic because you just assume friends are there for you. So you can dump all of your mental health needs on them. And they just, yeah. even if they want to be there for you, they don't have the training like a therapist would. Yeah, that's true. Knowing limitations and then having that open communication is important. Yeah. All right. So lastly, let's talk about some advice that we have on supporting students with autism if they're experiencing anxiety in the classroom. Okay. So Nicole, what are your go-to to help support students with autism that are anxious? It helped for me to disclose that I had autism to my autistic students so that they felt understood and able to express themselves when they were having anxiety. Mm -hmm. Sometimes disclosing my autism to autistic students created more anxiety and resistance for students with autism if they felt ashamed for being different. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. disclosure process really depends on the relationship that you have with the student. Yes, for sure. Um, I'm of the belief that I'm going to try. I don't know how my students are going to respond, but I do think it's important to, for them to know that they have an adult in their life that gets them. Mm -hmm. And even if they don't want to outwardly talk about their autism, they don't want to admit that they're autistic and that they struggle, they may be more comfortable with saying, I really struggle with tests. Let's talk about it. So, you know, and, and even if they're not willing to admit it, they understand Maybe Miss Niederman, or at the time that was my last name, maybe Miss yeah. Niederman gets it. In my experience, my autistic girl, transgender, and non-binary students felt more comfortable with the autism disclosure conversation than my autistic boy students. Interesting. I don't know why, um, but that's how the cookies crumbled in my classroom. Mm -hmm. um, IEP 504 and behavior intervention and intervention plans typically help paint a picture of what yes. students need when they are feeling anxious. I will say as a new teacher, I got kind of scared when I got a behavior inter intervention plan because, you know, it's like, what if the kid is violent? Yes. But that's rarely the case. Exactly. And, exactly. Uh, and if you don't fully understand what's going on or, or you need help, talk to that kid's caseworker. Yes. And they'll Absolutely. give you an idea of what to do. 100%. And, you know, the other thing, too, is like when it comes to holds, like if a if a student has a meltdown, mm -hmm. teachers are not responsible for doing that. There are people trained in the building in special education that can do that. 
So it's really important to remember that when it comes to things on a behavior intervention plan, it is not on the teacher's shoulders to do everything on there. Sometimes what the teacher needs to do is, is recruit the person that can best intervene. Hmm. Help them to feel heard without enabling preser uh, perseveration. And this is really important, especially if you're talking to the kid during class or during passing period, because you have to go back to your classroom and you got to yep. run your classroom. Yep. It's important that they feel heard because they may trust you over a school counselor. Giving them breathing techniques or grounding exercises if you see them getting worked up, because again, they may not uh, see a school counselor to learn those things, but if they trust you as a teacher and you have some good mental health techniques, give it a shot with them. Have them work in a separate room or a quiet space. Mm -hmm. Give them the option to free draw or take a break from the project, at least if it's yes. art. But yeah. I think sometimes like social no, studies too. Sure. You know? Yeah, it's the idea is that, you know, if, if they need a break, um, you know, drawing is a, is a great therapy. Yeah, I know some teachers that will have, uh, whether they're art teachers or not, they'll have those adult coloring books. Mm -hmm. And yeah, me, that's yeah, great. Mandela's, I Mandela's mean, I are think great. Like, you know, going back to the whole, how do you accommodate like everybody with needs? I mean, even if you don't know how to accommodate for neurodiversity, at least accommodate for mental health. Sure. You know, I, I so many teachers now are doing the fairy lights uh, where they don't do mm. the uh, the fluorescent lights anymore. Correct, yeah. They have a variety of desks. They have beanbag chairs yes. like and uh -huh. think about what that does to a student's mental health. It just makes them feel a little more relaxed. And especially yes, if definitely. they're going through something really stressful in their lives. I I do think I don't think teachers should have the responsibility of solving the mental health issue. But I Correct. do think teachers can make a difference if they say, what can I do to make the space comfortable for you? Sure. Mm -hmm. Or what can I do to modify the expectations of the task that day so mm -hmm. the student can finally mm -hmm. have parasympathetic nervous system activation? Yeah. Yeah. And that, to me, is so much more important than like working on their art project. So allow the options for brain breaks or trips to the counseling office. Make sure that the frequent bouts of anxiety don't cause avoidance of material. So try to get to the root cause of anxiety tri triggers in the classroom. And if that's challenging, reach out to parents, caseworkers, and school social worker. Modify the sensory environment in the classroom to make it more accommodating. Give students the option to eat lunch in a safe space, such as the classroom of an accepting teacher or a quiet room. That accommodation is tricky because I will say as the giving autistic person I am, mm -hmm. I, I definitely wanted to have like at least once a week, like allow my autistic students to come into my room to eat lunch. We can watch a movie. They don't sure. have to worry about being alone. But on the other hand, I need a break. Yes, exactly. And so if I, and because I get socially overstimulated, if I'm always welcoming students into my classroom and mm -hmm. I'm not even giving myself time to decompress. That's not healthy. Right. Exactly. And, uh, and I, and I've also had neurotypical teachers tell me that, you know, if they have a kid constantly coming in and, and they're treating the teacher like a counselor, like they're like, Hey, I got a grade. Uh, you need to go to the counselor. Um, which, which is hard for students to differentiate because 
they love their teachers. They, yes. they trust their teachers. They're like mm -hmm. a parental figure. So the authority figure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like you can, you can offer that with self-awareness of what your boundaries are. Um, then there's executive fun functioning coaching or creative problem solving coaching. Um, and I have, I, I've had autistic students who have executive functioning coaches. I didn't know those were a thing, but good for them to have that. And then when you discipline, do so in a love and logic manner. For mm. teachers, there's the whole love and logic philosophy. I really loved it. So that could be a really great resource. Yeah. So Brett, what did you do to support students with autism that were anxious? Well, the first thing to know is their IEP and 504. There might be some uh, things that they go to, some things that feel uh, that's going to help them in their anxiety that you don't have to come up with because it's already in their 504. Um, in addition to that, I found the best thing that I could do is be consistent in my teaching practices, be predictable. Um, if we're if I say the test is Friday, the test is Friday, and not you know constantly move things around kind of thing, um, and then give them a heads up on uh, uncomfortable changes in routine, like if we do group work or we do games and activities, kind of give them a heads up on on those kinds of things. In addition to that, not every teacher can do this. But when I um, had to move rooms, went into this new room, had it, some great space, but it's like, man, I really hated the stark white paint and the fluorescent lighting. So I was able to request that I could paint my room. So I painted my room some cool grays. Um, there was two different colors of grays that I used, and I, th I thought that kind of broke things down. And then um, I reduced the fluorescent light exposure by untwisting like a few of them so it wasn't blaring white all the time so those are some things you know and i think that those last two things benefited all students but not all teachers have the ability to um, repaint their rooms yeah yeah and and i think one thing that teachers totally underestimate but a lot of neurodiverse kids talk about is poster overwhelm when mm. teachers cover every single square inch of space on their walls with posters mm -hmm. you know yeah uh, inspirational quotes, sure. math formulas, uh, you know, English stuff. Mm -hmm. It's too distracting and overwhelming for people with autism. Yeah. And, and especially if teachers do the fairy light thing, it's like, what's the point of having all of those posters up? So I yeah. agree that I think the environment helps. And the other thing that I think is helpful is, you know, listen to our previous podcast episodes. Um, I talked about in our eye contact episode where, if I know that a student has autism, and even if I meet like other adults on the spectrum, the first thing I ask is, how comfortable are you with eye contact? Mm. I get anxious making eye contact with somebody who I suspect might have anxiety making eye contact. Mm. And so if I say, do you not want to look at me? And they go, no. And I go, okay, then we're not going to look at each other. And it's super relieving. Mm. So sometimes, you know, being able to talk about a test uh, helps if the child isn't required to make eye contact. Mm, mm -hmm. So I think being able to kind of just mirror or meet those behavioral needs where they're at, uh, that decreases an anxious barrier. And then um, that helps the, the child to focus on the academic obstacle. Yeah. So before we close out this episode, I wanted to share some other books 
that are good resources for people with autism struggling with anxiety. There are a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the first one is The Guide to Good Mental Health on the Autism Spectrum by Jeanette Perkis, who I think goes by Yen Perkis now, Dr. Mm. Emma Goodall, and Dr. Jane Nugent. There's The Healing Otherness Handbook by Stacey Reitscherzer, Unmasking Autism by Dr. Devin Price, Trauma, Stigma, and Autism by Gordon Gates, The Anxiety and Worry Workbook by David Clark and Aaron Beck, which is a cognitive behavioral therapy workbook, mm. The Highly Sensitive Person Book Series by Dr. Elaine Aaron, and Making Work Work for the Highly Sensitive Person by Barry Yeager. Um, the Highly Sensitive Person series is great. Now, one of the stigmas of these book series is a lot of people think that people with autism are not highly sensitive because they're not, quote unquote, empathic or empathetic and not right. in touch with their emotions. But that's far from truthful. I'm autistic and I got tremendous value from these books, despite being told that my autism wasn't relevant to it. Mm. But uh, making work work for the highly sensitive person. Um, if you're a highly sensitive person, this book can address significant factors that can cause anxiety in people with autism if it's not addressed. So I think it's a really good resource. Additionally, Nick Dubin has written these books that could also be helpful for people with autism. These are Autism Spectrum Disorder and Depression, which we're actually going to cover in our next episode. Asperger's Syndrome and Bullying, Autism Spectrum Disorder, Developmental Disabilities and the Criminal Justice System, and the Autism Spectrum, Sexuality and the Law. For people struggling with anxiety that are autistic and transgender, a good book recommendation is Supporting Transgender Autistic Youth and Adults by Finn V. Gratton. All right. So... We're coming to the end of the episode. So the summary is we've com we've covered common anxiety triggers in people with autism, five maladaptive schemas that create anxiety for people with autism, some general advice on how to treat anxiety, our own personal experiences with anxiety and how to deal with it, and how to support anxious autistic students in the classroom. And as Nicole talked about, our next episode is Autism and Depression referring to Autism Spectrum and Depression by Nick Dubin. I cannot recommend Nick Dubin enough as an author. He does such a good job of striking a balance between being very clinical in his descriptions and also being very personal and empathetic. I have gotten so much from his books, and I just so greatly appreciate everything that he's done as an author. So mm -hmm. hopefully you guys will consider... Uh, buying his books and taking away all the things that he shares with others. Awesome. You can follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode. Subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, etc. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. And if you have questions for us, Post them on our Facebook group or email us at Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info. All right. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you next week. Until then, I am Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabillas. Bye.